صلى عليك الله يا حمد نور المنازل يا محمد السلام عليكم As I begin my own spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Where do I begin to describe the impact of Said Amrit Tarsin has had on my journey? If this podcast had followed a chronological path, his interview would have been first. His weekly soul food classes at the University of Toronto and his beautiful podcast were my introduction to spiritual growth and tazkiyah. He introduced me to Group Thicker, talked about the importance of community, and sparked my curiosity in Dar al-Mustafa in Yemen. And I wasn't alone. All of us said Amjad's work spoke to the heart, which is so critical for students in the university setting. Outside of the chaplaincy, his weekly coffee and connections gathering at Seekers resonated across multiple generations. In this episode, Ustad Amjad talks about the dramatic shifts in his life, from undergrad to spending a year in Thareem, from leaving law school to pursuing a master's in the Islamic chaplaincy program at Hartford Seminary. And now, after seven years at U of T, he has moved to Allentown, Pennsylvania to join Sheikh Yahya Rodas to teach at Al-Maqasid. Please give your undivided attention to my teacher, Ustad Amjad. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammadin Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in You know, subhanAllah, there were so many um, Kind of different stages when growing up I mean, so I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan And then lived there till I was about seven years old And then we moved to Malaysia We were in Malaysia for a year And then after that moved to uh, Saudi Arabia for nine years So all of those kind of stages are very different. But alhamdulillah, overall, uh, you know, our parents were really kind of uh, focused on raising us with, you know, good akhlaq and learning Quran, praying, you know, and having uh, what I would sort of call like a thaqafa diniya, you know, like a, a religious kind of outlook and understanding on life. Uh, and they always, you know, alhamdulillah, like uh, exhibited the, the best akhlaq. Uh, so they raised us in that kind of environment. And part of the reason that we moved to Malaysia and then Saudi Arabia was to be able to kind of uh, actually be exposed to a more kind of rich Muslim environment, you know, have masajid to pray at, hear the adhan, be around other Muslims and so forth. So alhamdulillah, you know, that was something that I think we were very fortunate. You know, when you grow up, you don't really realize like, what other people's lives are like. Uh, but we were really fortunate in that sense that, you know, we always prayed together. You know, uh, my mother particularly would always kind of teach us different du'as before going to bed, doing different things, you know, going out of the house, getting ready for school, different du'as throughout the whole uh, process. My parents would always recite Yasin on their commute, you know. So, so alhamdulillah, we grew up kind of in that, uh, in that environment. Can you talk about maybe some of the early influences in your life? I know you've talked about your grandfather a lot. Yeah, so uh, I met my grandfather, rahmatullah alayh, 
probably I think I was like nine years old when I first met my grandfather for the first time. And my grandfather had come to the States and visited my mother uh, a, a few times, but that was all before I was born. So, uh, you know, I'm the youngest of, of five boys. So, uh, you know, there's a lot kind of a family history that I missed out on. And uh, when we moved to Saudi Arabia, uh, actually the first time I met my grandfather is we went to Egypt to, uh, to meet him, to visit him. And it was, we were living in Saudi Arabia at the time. So that was the first time I met him. And I remember, subhanAllah, I was like nine years old. And uh, I was so intimidated by him because he's, you know, he's very big, mashallah, uh, you know, in more ways than one. And kind of old school, very kind of quiet, but has this kind of commanding presence. Rahmatullah. So I remember one time my mom left and my Arabic was really bad at the time and he only spoke Arabic. I remember my mom left to do some things and all my uncles were gone. So it was just my grandfather and I. And he said, you know, make me some tea. And I said, I don't know. You know, I'm like this spoiled nine-year-old American kid. I was like, I don't know how to make tea. It's like, okay, I'll teach you. And from then on, you'll know how to make tea. So I was like, okay. So it's like, boil the water, put this in. It was, I mean, making tea is really not complicated. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, that's that's that was my first experience learning how to make tea. And, you know, I just remember, like, the way that he taught me, although I was kind of, you know, shy and, and nervous about doing it, the way that he taught me was, was so beautiful. Uh, so that was kind of my first experience with him. And then I think probably one of the most impactful experiences a few years later, you know, uh, uh, still quite young, was we went on a trip to Medina with my, with my grandfather. So we went to Umrah. And when I was living in Saudi Arabia at the time, you know, the way that people were kind of uh, being educated was like, if you're going to go on Umrah or even if you're going to go on Hajj, just go to Mecca, do what you need to do, and go back, you know, uh, to whatever it is that you were doing. And my grandfather insisted we have to go to Medina. And actually, whenever he would come visit us, because my mom would get him kind of a special visa where he could stay with us for a longer time. And we lived in Riyadh, so he would stay with us in Riyadh. So whenever he would come visit us, he would tell my mother, I'm coming to visit the Prophet, so I send him, then I'm coming to visit you. Even if chronologically, I'm coming to you first. So that was always like, you know, as a kid, you're like, what? That's so, like, I don't understand what he means by that. So we went to Medina. And at this point, we had already been in Mecca, I think, for like a week uh, leading up to going to Medina. And we were kind of tired and we wanted to go back to kind of home and our comfortable beds and things like that. And my grandfather, Rahmatullah, was very simple. So he could stay anywhere. You could just put like a little, you know, pillow on the floor and he'd be fine. But we were, you know, kind of wanted something a little bit more comfortable. So when we got to Medina, we were staying in a really uh, simple accommodation. So then my brothers and I go to our mother. We're like, we got to go back home. We're tired, this, that, the other. So then she speaks to my grandfather. And I had never seen anyone uh, up to that point in my life. I had never seen anyone like this. So then I saw, you know, my grandfather was really upset and almost kind of like disappointed. And he said, you know, what am I going to say to the Prophet Sallallahu that, like, I don't come and visit him? And I remember all of us, my brothers and I were like, it's like he knows the Prophet Sallallahu It's like, you know. And really we said, we didn't even know a lot of the ahadith at the time. It's like, it's like as if the Prophet Sallallahu is, is his best friend, you know, from how much he loved him. And it was the first time for us to witness kind of the, 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 the sentiment of, 
loving the Prophet more than anyone else. We we had heard about that in some way or shape or form, but it was always kind of like lip service, you know, like what does that mean? It sounds nice, but but to see someone who really kind of the most important thing to him was, you know, his relationship and his respect to the Prophet We had never seen that before and it stuck with all of us. Uh so you know, alhamdulillah for for uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just giving us that connection and being able to, to see someone like that so close. And also I think, you know, my parents, particular, both of my parents, but particularly my mother, I remember as a child, you know, she would always kind of teach us duas and, you know, make kind of, uh, make us love different aspects of the deen. And for, for that generation, you know, there was a lot of things that was almost just kind of like very organic to them. You know, certain things, whether it's du'as or whether it's perspectives on life and so forth. Um, so I, I think growing up, definitely my mother and my and, and my grandfather, uh, rahmatullahi. From, I guess, that foundation, when did you realize Islam was going to be the most important thing in your life? Uh, mashallah. Later than I, than I would have wished. So this was kind of like, there, there, growing up, I think I was really trying to find what was important in my life and kind of moving around, you know, be, being uh, born in, in the States, moving to Malaysia, moving to Saudi Arabia. And by the time I was living in Saudi Arabia, most of my brothers were already back in the States. And then about halfway through my time there, um, my brother who's closest to me in age, my brother Asad, <clears throat> he moved back to the States to go to, to, go to college. So I was kind of alone for a little while, but then my my oldest brother came and moved with us and lived with us in Saudi Arabia. But there was these times where it was just kind of like the people I love are in America. I'm in kind of like this foreign land. I didn't really like it. You kind of feel out of place. And then I think one of the most damaging things, um, maybe damaging is a strong word, actually, but one of the most challenging things was just the way that Religion was understood and experienced uh, at that time in a place like Saudi Arabia, particularly Riyadh. Uh, you know, everything was kind of forced on people. Everything was about this outward conformity, which is important, but it's part of a larger whole. You know, everything was kind of like harsh and very judgmental and frankly, like straight up arrogant. And you have these experiences and you know, even uh, kind of being a teenager, you realize like something's off. So I remember one example is that they would have these um, quote unquote. They're called al-amr bil ma'ruf al-munkar. You know, the the some you know group of people who are responsible for commanding the good and forbidding the evil, and we just call them religious police. So they would go around, like if someone was outside during salat time, like at the mall or at a grocery store or, you know, just going about their business, going for a walk even, uh, and it was time for salat, they would drive around telling people you got to go to the masjid and if like they don't conform, arresting them. But here's the thing, it's like you're telling people go pray in the masjid right now and you're driving around in a car telling people go pray, you're not in the masjid. Like, it's so weird. So those kinds of things really um, kind of leave a sour taste in your mouth. And I remember, you know, a bunch of different experiences 
where, you know, they would just assume the worst in people and so forth. And everything was about how people, everyone else is doing it wrong. So at some point, you know, it's hard enough being a teenager, but then kind of that's the exposure that you have. Alhamdulillah, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's, you know, a, a mercy, it wasn't, we didn't leave like a much worse kind of uh, imprint on us. But, you know, those whole teenage years, uh, for a lot of the kids I was growing up around, you know, it was, it was almost kind of like the, the counterculture was just do anything that was like against religion. And now you're kind of seeing that, unfortunately, uh, manifest in, in really dangerous ways. But that's how it was. So when I came back to university, I had graduated from high school and came back to America. And another thing that really kind of, I think, uh, was was part of, I, you know, finding who I was, was a lot of my close friends growing up were still in America. But then here's where things started to get tricky. So, alhamdulillah, like my parents really, really put in a huge effort, uh, you know, to, to, to cultivate, you know, good character and avoiding things that were haram and avoiding things that were kind of harmful and dishonorable and so forth. And we have this word in Arabic, um, which almost like growing up was like worse than haram. It's not worse than haram, but this is just our, you know, the way it was at home where it's like, Aib. like that's shameful. So it was like, oh man, like I don't want to dishonor my parents by doing something that if they found out, they'd be really disappointed. So Alhamdulillah, Allah protected me from a lot of stuff. But then when I came back to America, my friends who had grown up here uh, had, you know, had a lot of like really uh, things that things that, you know, I was like really uh, embarrassed about or really kind of shocked that those are the things that happened to them. And, you know, as you go to college, those things tend to get worse. So I remember my first year of university kind of really being conflicted. Like these are my friends who I grew up with. These are some of the things that they're doing, even though I'm not doing those things. They're still my friends. We're hanging out. I'm around them. You know, all kinds of, you know, it's like oil and water. Like the, the two can't mix. You have to get to a point where you make a decision. Either you're going to accept those things and that's going to be your life. And as the Prophet said, you know, that a person uh, uh, is upon the religion of their close friend. And a good friend is like a perfume seller. You know, either they'll, they'll give you some perfume and you'll smell good. Or at the very least, the, the, the beautiful way that they smell is going to rub off onto you. And a bad friend is like a blacksmith. Either you're going to get burnt by something, or at the very least, you're going to get dirty. So, <clears throat> you know, I was kind of at that point, like living it. You know, what am I going to do? So I remember sitting down at the table, and there was a lot of other things. SubhanAllah, how Allah, you know, really plans and prepares things. I had trouble with financial aid at the University of Michigan. So I had to move in with my older brother and go to community college, which really like, uh, was a hard hit for my ego because I wanted to be in this kind of more um, elite school and think that I'm smart and even whatever, even if you get bad grades and all that kind of stuff. It's funny how we try to trick ourselves into, you know, these kinds of uh, ways of being proud. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was really preparing me, I think, for, for re you know, kind of this introspection that's needed. So I had a lot more time to myself. I actually had a big falling out with one of my friends. So I stopped hanging out with him and, and frankly, like he, he, he kind of was the worst influence. Um, and just, 
came to a point where I said, okay, you know, being with my grandfather, alhamdulillah, growing up in Muslim countries, you know, uh, growing up in the environment that we had at home, I always knew like one day I want to, you know, one day I want to really commit myself to my deen. One day I want to be on top of my prayers. I want to do all these kinds of things. Um, but one day, you know, like we'll get there eventually. Uh, and then I was kind of saying, and here's the other path. You know, like I can get caught up in all this stuff and realize that like it's really dark. You know, like even those people who are involved in it, you can see that they're not fulfilled. Every time we would just waste time. And even if I wasn't doing what they were doing the next day, I'd be like, why am I around people doing this kind of stuff? So you get to this point, and then here's the really, here's the really beautiful thing, by Allah subhanahu wa grace. Around that same time, my uh, my brother Asad, who who was you know pretty uh, dedicated and devoted, alhamdulillah, he had um, you know been part of a group that had organized the halaqa at the local masjid. So my brother was like, come to the halaqa at the masjid. I was spending a lot more time with him. Uh, actually, in addition to my in addition to my grandfather and my mother, I would say my brother Asad is like uh, is like my second dad, and just like always telling me what to do, always you know uh, uh, kind of getting into my business. But it was very helpful in the long run, and he really, really, alhamdulillah, like uh, helped me stay out of a lot of trouble and influenced me in a really good way. So when he started telling me more about religion and inviting me to this halaqa. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I benefited a lot from that. And then I remember, I remember the exact moment where something clicked. And my brother had read a hadith to me. And it was just kind of like one of those things where like, what? Like, the Prophet said that, like, what does that even mean? And you start to realize that the deen is like so much deeper and more profound than you ever noticed before. And it was the hadith. Uh, a hadith Qudsi where the Prophet says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Man Whoever shows enmity to a wali, to one of the elect servants of Allah I declare war against him And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says And my servant does not draw closer to me with anything more beloved to me Than that which I have made an obligation upon him and my servant continues to draw closer to me with voluntary acts of worship until I love him or her. Uh, so when I love my servant, I become the hearing with which he hears, the sight with which he sees, the hand with which he strikes, the foot with which he walks. And if he asks me, I will certainly give him. And if he seeks refuge in me, I will certainly protect him. So I was like, the sight with which he sees the here, like the, the hand with which he strikes. And I remember saying to him, I was like, man, like this is like, forget superheroes, like someone who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives that, like who, how could anyone ever harm them? Like what limitations does someone like that have? And I remember it really hit me. I was like, man, like, this is beautiful. So then uh, the, the halaqa that was taking place at the masjid was uh, uh, was being taught by a brother named Dr. Umar Mahmoud. And he was teaching a book called The Book of Assistance. So I remember going to this class. And I remember my brother Asad. So I told Asad, I said, 
no, man, if I go to the halaqa, all these people are going to judge me. Which is like, you know, the typical excuse not to be around like people who are more dedicated, right? He's like, nobody cares about you. Like, who's going to judge you? I was like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so we went to the halaqa. And I remember, I don't remember anything that was said. I don't remember anything specifically about what was being taught. But I remember sitting there and something entering my heart. And I said, this is Islam. Like what was being said, and he was teaching Imam Hadad's book of assistance. Whatever was being said, like it just really struck me. Like this is the reality of the religion. Like this is it. And I knew that what I had been exposed to before was lacking something. And I didn't know all of the terminology and the kind of ideologies behind that and so forth. But it was just an experience. This is Islam. And I remember just really being moved and like not even knowing why, but just being moved to tears. And then, you know, alhamdulillah, that halaqa became like, became like oxygen, you know, like waiting for it all week. And then, you know, as soon as it was over, looking forward to the next one. And then from there, uh, you know, Dr. Amr Mahmoud would talk about the school where he studied, which was Dar al-Mustafa. And he would say things about it. And I just remember, I was like, I have to see this. Like, I have to experience this for myself. Like, this place sounds so amazing. And there's, you know, everything that we'd be reading in the book, he would say, oh, yeah, we do th- they would do this there and they would do that there. It's like, I have to be in this place where Islam is like lived in this way. So that was my, my freshman year, my first year of university. And uh, it was towards the end of my freshman year. So then the next, uh, the next school year, there were two, uh, two guys at the University of Michigan MSA who were like, you know, very dedicated, uh, devout, you know, very clearly kind of like, you know, just people are like praying on time, wearing kufis, like very ostensibly religious and so forth, like, you know, uh, big thick beards. Uh, probably wasn't that thick, but by my standards, it was like, this, these guys have big beards, mashallah. And, you know, the things that people tend to, to notice or to put a lot of stock in. So I went to them and I was like, uh, you know, next year I want to be your roommate. And they knew my brother, but I was kind of like the, you know, the people weren't so sure about me. So I could see them like, um, yeah, we'll see, you know. And one of them, they're both converts. Um, one of whom is actually, uh, his name is Abdurrahman Blavelt. So he's the founder of Launch Good. He's known, so he was my roommate for three years. And the other is, his name is Abdullah Dan. So they're both converts and they were neighbors in Massachusetts. So Abdullah had become Muslim first and then Abdurrahman became Muslim. And uh, so then they both went to University of Michigan. And I was like, I'm going to be your, your, your roommate next year. So I was like really, really insisting. And alhamdulillah, uh, you know, in the second year of university, I came back to the University of Michigan and was their roommate. <clears throat> and while we were roommates... Like, I could probably count the number of times, like, we overslept for Fajr on, like, one hand in an entire year. Like, they were really on top of it. You know, mashallah, I remember consistently, uh, I don't want to expose their secrets, but a lot of good things. You know, getting up for, they would, not me, them, they would get up for Qiyam al and, you know, do all these devotional things, mashallah. So I was like, man, I'm in the right place. I'm, you know, with good people now. And that changed everything. Because in my first year of college, I was in the wrong environment, around the wrong people. And that had a really bad impact on my heart. And then the next year I was around people who were praying on time, you know, avoiding all of kind of the, the 
you know, dubious environments and being really careful about those things. And it just really, uh, I would say, changed my life. Uh, so from there, I was, you know, kind of getting more involved with MSA at university. And then the following year, which was 2004, I um, went to Rihla. So Rihla that year with Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Dean Intensive was in New Mexico. So it was like, you know, New Mexico, those were kind of like different, different kind of style a little bit in those days. So New Mexico was kind of like we're out in the middle of nowhere in Abiquiu, this beautiful kind of adobe uh, masjid. We were sleeping in yurts and, and bunk beds. Uh, it was really, really beautiful. So that was like another really uh, powerful experience. And we would have like classes with Imam Zaid in the morning, classes with Sheikh Walid and Maliki Fiqh and Hadith. And it was like the first exposure to, to serious learning. Uh, and that was really beautiful. And then the next year, right before my uh, senior year and final year of university, uh, in 2005, the Rihla was in Medina. And, you know, I was like, I really wanted to go to Medina. And uh, that was a year where it was kind of like, you know, if you're trying to go to law school, because I was trying to go to law school, <clears throat> you get some sort of internship. You want to do something that looks good on your resume. So, you know, my parents were like, just, you know, focus on getting an internship, this, that, the other. And I was like, I got to go to Medina. Like, I wanted to go to Medina. Even though I'd been there before with my with my grandfather, Alhamdulillah, you know, it, it almost didn't count because we were so oblivious to how special the opportunity was, you know. And I think maybe that night our grandfather made a lot of dua for us. I don't know. But Alhamdulillah, you know, a few years later, several years later, you know, our perspective had changed, alhamdulillah. So things worked out, and finally my parents, Jazahumallah kul khair. I think I put them through a lot. They're like, where is this, where is this kid going with his life? But they, they relented, and, and they uh, allowed me to go, and, and, and uh, you know, help me register and all that stuff to go on rihla. So then in 2005, going to Medina, that was another kind of really... Uh, Alhamdulillah, I had done Umrah multiple times, you know, living with my parents in, in Saudi Arabia. But going to Medina was something else, like going to visit the Prophet And once again, it's one of those things that's very experiential, where uh, when visiting the Prophet I just knew without the shadow of a doubt that he could hear me, our hearts, my soul was connected, you know, to the Prophet And I just knew it was... It's like, you know, if you think about the intercession on the day of resurrection and going to the Prophet and saying, you know, help me and, and kind of the, the, those kinds of moments, internally it felt the same way. Like, Rasulullah, I'm struggling. You know, I know you love your ummah, you're sent as a mercy to the world, so on and so forth. And it was the most beautiful experience of my life. It was a beautiful experience of my life, visiting the Prophet And, you know, one of those things that I think people just need to experience and then they'll know. And that rihla was beautiful. It was very different than the one in 2004, but it was really, really beautiful. And then I, uh, after it was over, obviously coming back to the University of Michigan, and it was my last year of university, and I felt like really, really, almost like... Uh, it was just like this intense state of feeling that this isn't going anywhere. Like this kind of lifestyle 
going to class, everyone, you know, and being surrounded primarily by people who aren't, who aren't Muslim. But like all of the conversations are like really shallow. Like I just had this really intense feeling of like, this is meaningless. And then really intense feelings of, I have remembering the stories that, you know, uh, we heard in the book of assistance class and saying, okay, I need to, I need to go to Tarim. I need to go to Hamad And over the course of that, those three, four years, I had seen more kind of videos and uh, lectures uh, by Habib Ali al-Jifri. Um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve him. And you know, I was just like, who is this person? You know, so radiant, so luminous, such beautiful character. And uh, I said, you know what, like, and I just felt something in my heart. I was like, I have to meet him. I have to. Uh, and I would I would have conversations with Dr. Umar Mahmoud, and he would say, you know, that, that's wonderful. And actually, the funny thing, sorry, this is an important uh, important detail in the story. So my first year of university, Habib Ali and Jifri came to Michigan. And my brother was like, there's a scholar here. You have to go see him. And at that point, like I, I, I didn't, I, it wasn't in my heart. Like I didn't, I didn't know who Habib Ali and Jifri was. I, even if you told me this great wali, this great person of Allah is coming, it wouldn't have registered. So my brother's like, you got to go, you got to go. And I tried to go. And then the guy that I, I uh, wanted to go with, I think his sister was driving with him in the car and there was like not a whole lot of space. So we could have worked it out, but I was just like, oh, forget it. And don't worry about it. I'm just going to stay. But then what happened was everyone who went to see him came back a different person. Like it was visible. And every time I would ask, like, you know, months later, what was it like when you met Habib Ali? People would just like be overcome and they'd be like, I never saw anyone like that before. You know, and I'm like, man, like that's, I felt like I had missed out on something so immense. So then I was like, I have to go and study with Habib Ali. And at the time, I think Habib Ali was living in uh, Abu Dhabi in the Emirates. And there was this, um, there was this organization called Guidance Media that did like videos and uh, publications and things like that. Uh, and one of the people involved in that at the time was Mustafa Davis. So I remember emailing Mustafa Davis. I'm like, I'm really into photography. I want to come kind of like either do like an internship or something. I just wanted to find any excuse to be around Habib Ali. So while I did that, I also applied to Dar Mustafa. And I was praying istikhara. Like, should I go to Dar Mustafa? Should I go to Abu Dhabi to be with Habib Ali? My, my heart was on Abu Dhabi. Like, that's what I wanted. I want to be around Habib Ali. Everyone would tell me, Habib Ali's sheikh is Habib Umar. And I'm like, that's amazing, but like, I have a connection to Habib Ali. So then, subhanAllah, when I started praying istikhara, all of the doors to Dar al-Mustafa and Yemen started opening up. And then the doors to go to Imarat, I mean, just became clear, this was the decision. So, uh, to make a long story short, I mean, that's probably all these boring details, but... Uh, then alhamdulillah so before my father gave me permission to eventually go he said okay you have to like do your LSAT because I had already been on this kind of law school track so I did my LSAT so, okay you know you have to get into law school and then we'll talk about it so I was like alright I'm applying to all these law schools I got into law school I got into like uh, uh, the law school that was kind of like my, my top choice 
So then he was like, okay, you got to get permission from them to give you a deferral. And emailed them, got the permission. So everything had worked out. So he's like, okay, you know, like, how are you going to pay for it? I was like, I thought you were going to take care of it. He's like, no, this is what you want to do. You you have to figure it out. And I was like, yeah, Allah, I'm broke. And literally, I remember that summer before going, I applied to every possible job under the sun. Barnes and Noble, I think even like fast food chains. I don't know if it was McDonald's, but like Arby's or just the most random places that I, you know, knowing better, I would never even work there for other reasons, for other fiqhi considerations. But like I applied everywhere and nobody even gave me an interview. What's going on? I'm like, yeah, Allah, like I really want to go to Tareem. I really want to go to Dar Mustafa. So then there was, there were these lawyers who were uh, working on like a big, uh, a big case and they needed an Arabic interpreter. So I had done some work with another lawyer, kind of like as an, as an intern leading up to, and it was part of this thing, just trying to get into law school. So then they called me last minute and they're like, oh, our, our translator is sick. We need you to translate with our client and they were going to pay like a lot of money. So I was like, all right, cool. You know, did the translation and then uh, had all the money I needed, like two days worth of work or three days or something like that. Had all the money I needed. So I was like, all right, here's the money. Got what I need. Buy the, bought the ticket. And, uh, you know, I think my father was just he just wanted to see me succeed. And he wasn't sure, you know, he wasn't sure what path this would take me down but alhamdulillah he agreed and and my mother agreed and you know they were they gave me their permission i had everything i needed and then uh and then i went to to study at dar al-mustafa and my life is split into before dar al-mustafa and after dar al-mustafa i mean before tarim and after tarim what's it like being in tarim and dar al-mustafa and uh so I remember when I first got there, and the whole way is just I mean, one thing after a, a, another. So I remember landing in Sana'a. So when I flew in, I flew in from Sana'a. And uh, so I land there, and I'm like in a different world. Don't know what's going on. So uh, Alhamdulillah, there, you know, uh, I had sent a, a letter to, and mashallah, Dar Mustafa, they're very organized. So I had sent a letter there and they had informed the airport, you know, customs that there's a student coming, he's passing through Sana'a and so forth. So then they're like, you know, where's your like proof that you're coming to study? And literally the guy like opens up like some random drawer and the the facts that they sent from Dada Mustafa is there. He goes, oh, this is the guy. Okay. You know, I'm like, I don't know if that's where you want to keep that paper, but alhamdulillah. Uh, it worked out. And then um, there's a branch of Dar al-Mustafa in Sana'a. So then um, one of the one of the brothers who kind of does khidma there, he picked me up from the airport. I think it was kind of late at night. It was after Isha. Um, and I remember this was... So I left to Tarim on August... Is it August 14th or 15th? I think it was August 15th, 2006. So, you know, it's August, but it was like really cold in Sana'a. So I didn't expect that. So Sana'a is pretty cold because it's kind of um, elevated. Uh, so then they took me to, you know, the, the, the Farah of Dar al-Mustafa to spend the night. And then the next 
afternoon there was a flight to Seoul, which is a half hour drive from Tiri. So then I was like, I want to buy the ticket right now. They're like, you don't want a few days to rest? I was like, no, I don't want to rest here. I want to rest. I want to go to Tiri. So I bought the ticket. It was like $80. It was like really cheap. Something like that. Um, from Sana'a to Seoul. And then we went to spend the night at the uh, the branch of Dal Mustafa in Sana'a. And I remember I couldn't sleep. You know, like I got there. It was already late. I was just like so excited. I'm like, I can't believe I'm almost there. I can't believe like I'm actually here. It's like really, really beautiful. So I remember I couldn't sleep. So then I got up out of the room, maybe to go like wash up or something. And I remember the person who picked me up from the airport, everyone's asleep. Then there was a door open. There was like a little room. And the person who picked me up from the airport was in the dark, just reading Quran. And I just remember like, who are these people? Like the most beautiful recitation. I'm like, I can't sleep. You know, I'm excited. It's God knows what hour. And he's just sitting in the dark reading Quran. Like sitting up, like reading, like tilawah. And it was so beautiful. And I was just like, yeah, Allah. There was like all of these signs. So then the next day, uh, I got on the, the plane and <laughs> flew to Seyun. And I was sitting next to uh, the grandson of one of the, you know, one of the, the elder respected habayib. His name is Habib Abdel Qadir Khirid. So this was his grandson, and I think uh, his grandson's mother was, I think, Habib Abdel Qadir's uh, daughter. So he's like, oh, where are you from? I'm going to Dar al-Mustafa. You know, uh, we had a really beautiful conversation. And then his grandfather was waiting for them there at the airport. So he was like officially the first one of the Habayib that I ever met. I had never even met Habib Ali or Habib Umar or anyone at this point, you know. But just their students and the people who, you know, had been affected by them and so forth. So, you know, said salam to him. And then, you know, Hadramaut is beautiful. It's it's like, it's ancient. So you're in a valley, you're surrounded by all of these mountains, but you, know, you feel like you're in an ancient place. So then uh, there was someone waiting for me to pick me up. He drove me to Dar al-Mustafa. And I just remember, I remember just walking into Dar al-Mustafa and I was like, yeah, Allah, you know, like, you know, am I going to make it? You know, it just felt like this really big, um, really big kind of uh, step. So then, alhamdulillah, I made it to Dar al-Mustafa. And I arrived there, it was Thursday, and I arrived there around Asr time. But I had done Jama' and Qasr. Uh, I had combined uh, Dhuhr and Asr in Sana'a. So I had already prayed. So they were praying Asr when I first arrived. And then they uh, they have like a, a room for welcoming guests, like people who first arrive and so forth. And I was like, I, let me leave my bags here. I just want to go to the musalla. And the musalla is like right across the, the the corridor, the hallway or the courtyard. So then I, I went into the musalla and sat down. And it was just like this sakina, this like tranquility. And uh, yeah, alhamdulillah. So then, uh, so then I remember one of the teachers... Habib Ali Abu Bakr ibn Sheikh Abu Bakr ibn Salim, he walks in and he just, you know, they call him like now the Westerners call him, I, I, we never call him this, but say, so, you know, they call him the Habib who smiles a lot. So he came and he saw me and probably recognized like I'm a new face and just this beautiful smile put me like at ease. And then uh, after Asr, sometimes, most of the time Habib Umar teaches a class after Asr, but on that day, uh, I think they were preparing for uh, this big ziyarah to Prophet Hud alayhi salam in Sha'ban. 
So he hadn't taught that day. So I hadn't seen him. So the first time then I saw Habib Umar was at Salat al-Maghrib. And immediately after Salat al-Maghrib is the Mawlid. So it was like, ah, it was like this amazing experience. And then Habib Umar got up and, and gave a talk at the Mawlid. And it was like the dua, like I really felt like this, the, the ceiling's going to crumble uh, because of how powerful his dua was. And then immediately after that, uh, after the Mawlid, we went to Imam al-Haddad's masjid. And obviously the Book of Assistance and reading the books of Imam al-Haddad and Wurd al-Latif and the Ratib, you know, feeling such a strong uh, connection to Imam al-Haddad and so appreciative. Uh, you know, it was amazing to go to his masjid and uh, to kind of see his sibha and see his house and see the place where he prayed. Uh, uh, and then we went back to Dar Mustafa in the evening. And then that evening, they have something called Al-Hadr Al-Badriya. They do a dhikr uh, once a month on the last uh, Laylatul Jum'ah of each month. So that was the last Laylatul Jum'ah of Rajab. And they did the Hadr Al-Badriya and Dar Mustafa. So it's like 2 a.m. And they're doing this like beautiful dhikr. There's, you know, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. A lot of salawat upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And I remember calling my father. And, you know, my father's like, right, did you make it? Are you okay? And I'm just like, Baba, listen. You know, like put it up to the to the speakers. Because it's like 2 a.m. And it's like, you know, totally dark outside. And that most of others lights. But you can feel like the stillness of the, the, the place. And it's just reverberating with salawat upon the Prophet. So I said, at 2 a.m. I'm like, Baba, where? Like, look where I am. You know, and... Uh, so that was just kind of like the first night of, of being at Dar al-Mustafa. So, um, yeah, being there, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of hard to, to put it into words. But I mean, I think that the, the easiest way and maybe the simplest way to describe it was like, it just felt like I had never felt so at peace in my life. Like other than being in Mecca or Medina, like those, you know, obviously... Uh, most sanctified places, but just living somewhere, being around people, being around this entire kind of environment, uh, I never felt so at peace in my life. Just for people that maybe don't really know the terminology, can you just explain who the Habayib are? Sure, yeah. So, the Habayib, the, the word Habib or the plural Habayib is a title given to uh, scholars in Hadramaut, it's just kind of the tradition in Hadramaut, given to scholars who are also descendants of the Prophet Muhammad uh, And in, uh, in Hadramaut and in specifically Tarim, there is a really beautiful, preserved uh, tradition uh, that has been kind of passed down and preserved through the Ahl al-Bayt and the scholars of Hadramaut who are descendants of the Sahaba, many of them, um, who, uh, to bring it all the way back to the beginning, um, in the time of Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, there were a lot of people who were, after the the passing of the Prophet they were apostating. And they were known as Hurub al-Ridda, the wars of apostasy. So Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq sent people to Yemen to really kind of make sure that people don't apostate and leave their religion. 
when the Sahaba arrived to Tarim, they found that no one left Islam. So they told Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, we came to this place, this city called Tarim, and we found that, alhamdulillah, everyone was firm upon their Islam. So then Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, he made three kind of famous du'as for Tarim. And he said, uh, uh, may the, the, the city, uh, you know, the people of righteousness, may they always have righteous people and scholars present there and growing like the crops grow. Like always kind of being produced uh, uh, time after time. And then he said, may they, uh, may they have abundant water and may it continue to remain civilized. Like it's never an abandoned uh, uh, city. <clears throat> and, and may it always uh, remain uh, civilized. So these three du'as yani, were the du'as that Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq made for the city of Tarim. Uh, one of the descendants of the Prophet through his grandson Sayyidina al-Husayn, his name was uh, Ahmed al-Muhajir ilallah bin Isa al-Naqib. Uh, so they were living in uh, in the time in about uh, uh, the 3rd century uh, or late 3rd, no, no, the 3rd century uh, or 4th century. I always get the centuries mixed up. Of uh, After the Hijrah, they were living in Iraq. And at the time, there were a lot of, you know, uh, kind of tribulations taking place. So he was really worried for his children and his family that all of these kind of uh, problems would uh, come upon them and the dunya would open up for them and so forth. So he left and they were very wealthy and they were very kind of well established. But he left all of that behind and he went to Medina. And he kept making dua uh, for an entire, uh, for an, I think a year or two years. He was in Medina making dua that he has a sign of where to take his children. So then he had a dream of the Prophet wasallam. And the Prophet ﷺ indicated to him, you know, go uh, uh, to Hadramaut and, and settle in Hadramaut. So he settled in Hadramaut and he's buried in a, in a place called Husayisa, which is very close to Sayun. And then his children and offspring, uh, many, many, many great ulama and awliya and salihin uh, descended from him. And they say it's from the barakah of his intention to preserve you know, this, the, the way of his forefathers, the way of the Prophet ﷺ. So his descendants are known as Bani Alawi or Ba Alawi, uh, which is like the Hadrami way of saying the tribe of Alawi. So uh, the Habayib are essentially his descendants from the Ahl al-Bayt who settled in the area and are uh, uh, scholars. And then there are also other great scholars of Hadramaut who are descendants of the Sahaba. Uh, who they refer to generally as al-mashayikh, the mashayikh, the shiukh. And then the habayib also historically were um, the, 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 the greatest number of people who entered Islam, or at the very least uh, a very large percentage of people who entered Islam in the world, entered Islam through their da'wah efforts. So one of the things that they were very focused on was really spreading the message and, and the, the, the benefit and mercy to all people. So from Hadramaut, you see there were uh, some great ulama who went to Southeast Asia and all of Indonesia and Malaysia and Singapore and even Thailand and, and the, the, that area 
people became Muslim through their efforts. Uh, they went to uh, uh, they went to uh, Bangladesh and India, uh, and you find kind of particularly like southwest India on the shore. A lot of people there are Shafi'i, and even uh, many of the Habayib settled there. And you have people from like Al Aydarus, from I think like Hyderabad and so forth, uh, from the from the family of Bani Alawi and the Habayib. Uh, also, many people in East Africa and other parts of the world as well. So they they were also very instrumental in the preservation and the the spread of Islam to you know many parts of the world. So that's a little bit about who the Habayib are uh, as kind of a tradition and what it means uh, and and how it all started. But really, kind of the you know the base of where all of that uh, benefit and goodness spread was from Hadramaut and from Imam Ahmed bin Isa, who they refer to as Al-Muhajir ilallah, the one who migrated to Allah. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned while you were there, um, just by like being in that kind of environment and by observing your teachers? Yeah. You know, one of the things that's really, really important is that knowledge, that when a person is seeking knowledge, it's accompanied with the appropriate adab and and etiquette and manners. And I think in today's world, especially now that there's a lot more opportunities with the internet and so forth, and, and people are generally have more access to information, sometimes that the two become separate, uh, separated from one another. And one of the most beautiful things about just being uh, in Tareem, being in Dar al-Mustafa, is that, you know, sincerity, uh, seeking nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, having good akhlaq, you know, uh, dedication and devotion to like reciting the Qur'an, praying in jama'ah, uh, doing one's awrad and adhkar and so forth, that's like built into the whole uh, the whole endeavor of seeking knowledge. So even one of the things that's profound is that uh, this, you know, a lot of people attest to this. They say even if people come here for a short time, you know, the, the way that they teach and the way that they instill learning and understanding is, is that it, it puts a lot of baraka in the knowledge. So it's not like, you know, I'm here, we're just going to read through 20 books. And someone goes, I have an ijazah I read with this sheikh, and these are all the books that I read. Okay, how well did you understand them? Doesn't matter. Uh, how deeply have you implemented them? That doesn't matter either. Like, like their people just have this, like, really shallow approach. But over there, it's like you might have just a, a booklet. But, you know, the 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 deeper meanings, the the attempt to, uh, re, you know, uh, attain realization of what is being said, of taqwa, of ubudiyah, of servitude, of God consciousness, of all of these things are really built into it. So so it's almost like a key that unlocks, you know, there's a hadith of the Prophet wasallam where the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, whoever acts upon what they know, man amila bima allama, uh, 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 
whoever acts upon what they know, what they learned, Allah bequeaths upon them a knowledge of what they didn't know. And that's really, uh, that really is embodied in, in Tareem and in Hadramaut and in the tradition of the Habayah. So, you know, beautiful akhlaq. I remember one of the most beautiful khutbas I attended. And I was like, I never in my life heard anything like this before. And it was Sheikh Umar bin Hussein al-Khatib. So he was giving a khutbah. And the whole khutbah was about bringing happiness to the hearts of other Muslims. The whole khutbah was about the most beloved acts to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after the obligatory acts is bringing happiness to another Muslim's heart. I never even heard that before. I'm like, what? This is beautiful. Like, how come I never heard this before? And, you know, being kind to one another and stories from the Sahaba and all these different things. And I remember after that khutbah, we went back to Dar Mustafa because we would pray in another masjid close by, a jamr called Masjid al-Rawda. So we came back to Dar Mustafa. All the students are like offering each other tea and like, saying salam to each other in the hallways and like, like it was so beautiful but immediately it was implemented like it immediately affected people so you know just that kind of environment uh really changes i'll give you a perfect example actually because this happened while i was there we went out on a da'wah trip because i was also struggling with like how come this experience of islam is so different from the experience I had when I was living in Saudi Arabia. And all they talk about there is Quran and Sunnah. And all we're really living here and trying to hold on to is Quran and Sunnah. But it's so different. So I tried to make sense of that. So then I remember one time we went on a da'wah trip. And we went to a town or like a village that was, you know, very anti uh, up to the approach that we were learning. So we walk into the masjid and there's, you know, a guy giving a talk. And then as soon as he sees us walk in, he starts like saying bad things about the founder of the school and starts kind of, you know, this like uh, critiquing kind of uh, the approach to learning and so forth. So then after he was done, you know, because uh, it's, it's, there's a culture there of people going to different masajid, students of knowledge and giving talks. So it's not weird. It's just a normal culture there. So they knew that we were from that school and we're here, you know, different students to give kind of talks in the masajid. So then they came up to us and they're like, yeah, you can't talk in any of the masajid. And we're like, okay, well, you know, we went to another masjid at Fajr. They said, you can't sit so can and give a few words. They said, no, you can't talk. Okay. You know, fine. Then we went to Salat al-Jum'ah. So Salat al-Jum'ah was the same guy who was talking the night before. And really, it was like, you know, when you hear like really nice khutbahs for a long time, and then you hear this really terrible one, you're like, ah, like, back to this again. So he started giving the khutbah, and he was like, anyone who doesn't pray in the masjid is a munafiq. And the Prophet ﷺ, a man came to him who was blind, and he said, Rasulullah, give me permission not to pray in in the masjid in jama'ah. Because the roads of Medina are like, they're kind of like not well paved. And I live far away and it's hard for me to come. And the Prophet ﷺ said, do you hear the adhan? And he said, yes. So then you have to come. 
And just like, ah, uh, like I just felt like this knot on my heart. I was like, and I just knew, I'm like, this does not sound right. Something's wrong with the way that you're saying that or with the way that you're understanding that. So it really bothered me and it like stayed in my heart. So then I remember, subhanAllah, look at how generous Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. Literally like a week later or a few days later, I had uh, a class with one of my teachers in Riyadh al-Salihin. So reading Riyadh al-Salihin, we come upon that same hadith. Where one of the Sahaba was blind. Said, yeah. And the way that my teacher explained it was like night and day. So he's, he, one of the Sahaba came to the Prophet. He said, Rasulullah, you know, I'm blind and the roads of Medina are not well paved and I live far away. Can I be excused from praying in Jama'ah? And the Prophet said, can you hear the Adhan? He said, yes. So one that indicates it's not that far away in reality. They don't have microphones, they don't have speakers. So then he said, then you, you, you must come because of the good that you're going to receive. Like, think about it. Who's the Imam of the Salah? The Prophet Like that's something that maybe the Sahabi, for him at that point in his life was normal. But it's like, you're praying behind me. You can't miss out on that good. Like this is a very small obstacle in order to attain that good. So it was like a world of difference. You know, so I think that's one, that's really goes back to what's known as actually having a Senate in knowledge having a chain of transmission, learning from people who've learned from people who've learned from people who learned from the tabi'een, who learned from the sahaba, who learned directly from the Prophet ﷺ. That's called a sanad. And when people kind of then access things without having the proper training, without having the proper resources, without having the proper understanding, without having qualified scholars who can direct their learning, they're inevitably going to come to some uh, mistaken conclusions. So I really felt like that was one of the big differences. Is like they understand how you're supposed to live this. Not just the words on the page, like this other guy. And he's interpreting it through his own lens. But like the actual way that this is supposed to be lived. And I think that was one of the, the biggest you know, blessings uh, of studying there. How can you leave a place like that? I mean, what was it like leaving? It was so painful to leave. Um, I remember, so so I had the the before I had gone, I had a deferral for one year from uh, law school. So literally, I had a year, and as 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 much as I wish I had more time, knowing that I only had one year helped me take it seriously. So like when it was Ramadan, it's like, okay, this is the, this might be the only time I have to experience Ramadan in this environment. When it was Rabi'ul Awwal, I don't know if I'm going to have another chance. When it was, you know, all of these different events that take place. And one of the beautiful things about the tradition there is that they always have something going on. There is always either remembering the life of a particular scholar who passed away <clears throat> or different commemorations of like the Isra and Mi'raj or of Rabi'ul Awwal, the Mawlid of the Prophet there was always something. So I was able to tell myself, I might not get another chance to do this. So you got to put your best effort in. So in that way, it was a blessing. In other ways, I wish, alhamdulillah, I wish 
you know, the believer always wants more good. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the best of planners. When I came back, um, it was really, really, really difficult. Because it was like, you know, a year of being really immersed in this rich, beautiful, extremely ex- spiritually powerful environment. You know, coming back to not the opposite of that, but definitely far from it. So I came back and, you know, I think my 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 parents initially thought like, what happened? Like, you're not the same, you're not the same person. You know, there's always going to be kind of a period of time required just to get, you know, uh, readjusted and so forth. But, and then on top of that, like two weeks after I came back, if not less than two weeks, I went into law school. And it was like a super different environment in law school. And I was like, Ya Allah, what am I doing here? And I remember one of the things that was particularly jarring was uh, I had a class called Civil Procedure, I think is what it was called. And I came in and on, on, on Halloween and the professor was dressed up as a pirate. And I was like, Ya Allah, I was around like Salihin and Awliya and people who are like preparing for the Akhirah. And this guy can't even take himself seriously. He's dressed like a pirate in class. I'm supposed to like sit with him and, you know, I just remember that like really like bothering me. And I mean, you know, he's free to do whatever he wants to do, but man, I was like, this is not, this is not where I want to be. But it's extremely difficult. And I think for a while, you know, I came back in 2007 and there was no like live stream of classes. They would put classes up online and things like that, but it would usually be later. Uh, it just felt like kind of being completely immersed and then outwardly being like totally alone. And alhamdulillah, I had good friends when I came back. One of my really good friends growing up, his name is Mazen. You know, uh, I had, so there were, you know, uh, Mazen and another good friend of mine, Ustad Taysir, Muhammad Taysir Safi, who's uh, studying in, in, in Turkey. Uh, he was studying that year in Egypt and during while I was in uh, while I was in Yemen. So we both came back to Michigan around the same time and our really close friend Mazen who you know who hadn't been overseas that year while we were gone he's like I felt so alone while you guys were gone now you're back. He was just like soaking up everything we learned. So I remember you know it's like what was it like you know and and he would say like oh I noticed this thing about your adab like got to hold on to that you know, would give really good advice. And he was like really like observing everything that kind of um, had impacted me. So then, you know, really fortunate to have kind of that kind of friendship. But but even being having those close friends, it was still like a totally different environment and just missing those majalas, missing being around those shiuch and so forth. Uh, but then alhamdulillah, over time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up more doors. And, you know, it was really a mercy, I think, kind of helped appreciate helped us kind of appreciate what we have and then uh and then from there like law school didn't work out like it just wasn't for me and that that experience in Dar al-Mustafa was just so powerful like I couldn't just let go of it like I just couldn't you know like all of what what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kind of had opened up my eyes to just couldn't let go of it so then alhamdulillah when kind of uh, leaving law school, my father said, okay, but you just, you, 
you know, my father's a, a, a doctor, my mother's a professor, you know, they're very well educated. Um, and they want they want to see their children also succeed in the in the best ways that they know how. So my father said, Okay, but you have to do something like in higher education, you have to get a master's degree. Like you can't you can't not fulfill your potential in that way. And and he said something I really appreciated it very much because he was really disappointed when I left law school. But he said, Whatever you do, do it well and I support you. Like do it with Ihsan essentially and I support you. So then that's when uh, someone had told me about the chaplaincy program at Hartford Seminary. So then I said, okay, well, that, that seems to be the closest thing to what I want to do. I don't want to just be an academic, do a master's degree or a PhD and just talk about like some obscure, you know, how Ottoman soldiers dressed in like the 17th century. Like what benefit does that bring people? You know, do a whole PhD thesis on something like that. No offense, but uh, that wasn't for me. Because I don't want to be with people. I want to be able to speak to people from the perspective of Iman, from the perspective of, you know, getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so forth. So the chaplaincy seemed like the best option. So that was in uh, 2010. And then, alhamdulillah, you know, that was, I think, uh, that was a way that I was able to hold on to what I had learned. And then alhamdulillah from there I've been able to go back and visit a few times. I've been able to uh, kind of, you know, be on trips with uh, with my teachers, with Habib Umar. Also like Habib Ali Jufri came to Toronto a couple of times while I was living there. Had the opportunity to be in his company. So alhamdulillah there was like a time where it was just kind of like the shock of being, of separation outwardly, you know, and then... Slowly, more and more doors opened up, alhamdulillah. It's a very different, we're in a very different place kind of as a whole today than we were when I first came back. Alhamdulillah. Why did you choose chaplaincy and then uh, why Toronto? So chaplaincy, when I learned about chaplaincy, you know, it it, it made a lot of sense. It was, you know, being involved with people. Um, And actually, when I was in law school, I kind of uh, was helping the undergraduate students in the MSA. They would have certain questions. Sometimes they'd ask me to give khutbah. And it was really helpful for me because it helped solidify the things that I was learning in Dar mustafa So I really uh, enjoyed working kind of with people who were, you know, uh, uh, going through that, that stage in their lives. So when someone suggested chaplaincy to me, and obviously, you know, the most uh, the most notable kind of person who comes to mind is Imam Khaled Latif, kind of working with students, being able to put on halaqas, being able to really talk to people about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, helping them where they're at, listening to their problems, so on and so forth. So uh, I said, you know what, that sounds to me like the closest thing to being able to do da'wah, you know, like working with people, teaching them, having conversations, building kind of uh, connections and relationships and so forth. Uh, so I said, of all the options, whether it's kind of, I, my father wasn't going to really at that point let me go back and study full-time in Tareem. So of all the options that were available to me, it seemed to make the most sense. And, uh, you know, Dr. Matson also was at Hartford Seminary at the time, and 
you know, someone uh, I really wanted to benefit from and learn from. So uh, it just seemed like the best decision. Prayed istikhara, it worked out. Um, and alhamdulillah, like it was a really, really good experience. Um, and then when I graduated, so uh, it was so funny because one of the reasons, you know, like right after, this is also important, right after leaving law school and before even getting accepted to Hartford Seminary, I was kind of in this limbo phase and I took a, you know, I was working in these different jobs, but just, you know, working to save up some money now that I had left law school. And uh, in that time period when I really had nothing to show, you know, in my life, nothing to kind of present is when I got engaged. So it was like, it was, and I felt like it was a sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to tell me like these outward worldly things of if you're going to be some rich lawyer or not, that's that's not what takes care of you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who take, takes care of you. So it was like when I least expected it and had the least to show, you know, uh, that's when alhamdulillah, I got engaged. And then soon after, um, uh, in December of 2010, alhamdulillah, I got married. And uh, so when I graduated in 2012, you know, alhamdulillah, I'd been married for uh, about a year and a half. And, you know, at this point was looking for work, looking for kind of uh, ways to kind of take what I had learned and implemented it and implement it. And also, uh, you know, provide kind of uh, for my family and so forth. So when I had graduated, uh, that's when the Muslim chaplaincy at the University of Toronto was just kind of starting up. So I remember there was like this really simple website at the time. And I couldn't, there wasn't even an email address that I could find on the website to send my resume. So I went in Microsoft Word and like copy pasted my whole resume and put it in this like little text box for inquiries on their website and put it in and sent it. And I was like, Bismillah. And then uh, what was really funny, and this is another sign of just how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala plans things. What was really funny is that Shaykh Faraz Rabbani, may Allah bless him, you know, someone I really owe a lot to. They were the people who were putting together this uh, Muslim chaplaincy project, um, uh, putting together the, this project. Uh, they were consulting Sheikh Faraz, and Sheikh Faraz was saying, Oh, you should really consider Amjad Tarsim. Meanwhile, I'm like, I really hope like, I get this job, you know. And then, uh, to make a long story short, you know, they just took a really long time to get back to me. So I had accepted another job in Michigan. So then I told them, I said, I just want to let you know, I accepted this other job in Michigan, you know, in case you were considering, uh, considering me. So then they said, um, they said, uh, you know, we want to offer you the job if you'll, if you'll, uh, you know, if you'll consider it now. But I was like, no, I already took this job in Michigan. And, uh, you know, my parents are there, my brother's there, all this kind of stuff. So then I moved to Michigan, and right before I moved to Michigan, my parents moved back to Libya, and my brother uh, Asad moved to California. So I moved to Michigan, and you know, kind of what I was expecting to be there wasn't there. Uh, and then the job that I had taken at an Islamic school was terrible. It's terrible, like they treated people like dirt. So I that wasn't a good fit. Uh, so then I was like, oh man, I really hope they'll reconsider me. And I didn't know on the other side, they're like, how can we make this guy like reconsider our offer? And it's just how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when things are meant to be. 
So I sent an email and I was like, if you'll, you know, reconsider my application, I'd like to, I'd like to take the position. And alhamdulillah, it worked out. And then uh, in like uh, early October, late September 2012, alhamdulillah, I, I uh, got the position and moved out there. And alhamdulillah, the rest is history, as they say. Can you talk a little bit about what your vision was like while you were at UT? Muslim Chaplaincy of tea and I mean we got to meet so many amazing people. We got I mean Shaykh Yahya came to visit us. Yeah. Habib Ubaidullah came, yeah. Osama Cannon. Allah Yashfi. Yeah, subhanAllah, there was it was a beautiful seven years. And really like I you know I would say one of the most formative kind of uh, stages of of our lives. Um so uh, when I was at Hartford Seminary, one of the things that I was trying to do was connect what I was learning uh, to what I had learned in Dara Mustafa. And really that this idea of Muslim chaplaincy, Islamic chaplaincy, whatever we call it, how can we really root it deeply in the prophetic sunnah? So my master's thesis was called um, something like uh, the prophetic model of pastoral care. And it was relating certain uh, aspects of counseling and kind of uh, having counseling conversations back to the way that the Prophet spoke to people. And one of the books that really helped shape my thesis was a book called At-Tawadr As-Sa'diyyah Fi Bayan Maham Al-Da'wa Al-Fardiyyah Felicitous Ascensions uh, in Clarifying the Responsibility of One-on-One Da'wah. And essentially, uh, it's kind of a book related to how to treat people, whether it's a friend or a family member or an acquaintance, how to really build a relationship with them so that they're able to uh, be receptive to what it is that they need in order to draw close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's written by a contemporary scholar, Al-Habib uh, uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Rahman al-Saqaf. So he says there's three stages of that da'wah. At-ta'lif, at-ta'rif, at-taklif. So stage one, at-ta'lif, is really kind of building a relationship and uh, establishing a rapport, a respect with a person. So he says, you know, memorizing a person's name, smiling at them, saying salam, you know, getting to know them so that the person is just feels that, you know, they, they enjoy and appreciate a conversation with you. So that they feel valued. You know, you're not going to come and just, you know, immediately tell someone what to do. He said, when when that's successfully established, then this, the next stage is at-ta'rif. Which is to let them know what it is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from them. So then they're open to that. And then he says, and then the next stage is when a person learns what they need to know. And they're more established in their deen. He says, at-taklif. Taklif is then... Uh, taking on a responsibility, which is then to be a source of benefit for other people, to spread that uh, goodness to other people. So then that became kind of the three stages or the three principles of the chaplaincy. And then we kind of um, translated it kind of uh, kind of liberally as at-ta'lif, uh, embrace, and then at-ta'rif, engage, and then at-ta'lif, empower. Right. So um, that's really uh, that really kind of 
grounded what we were trying to do with the chaplaincy. You know, students are going through uh, many different kinds of challenges. Um, you really want to be able to help them along the way. So there needs to be a rapport established. They need to feel valued. They need to feel uh, respected. They need to feel that this is someone that they can talk to. And then having kind of engaging programming, classes, discussions, symposiums, things like that. And then, you know, from there, alhamdulillah, uh, people kind of, uh, when they go into the next stage of their lives, they continue on. And alhamdulillah, I think, you know, this is a, a fruit of uh, from that kind of uh, endeavor and effort, alhamdulillah. And that's a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, um, I'm sure there's a lot more backstory to this, but how did you meet Sheikh Yahya and how did you decide to come? Oh, yeah, yeah, mashallah. So this is, you know... SubhanAllah, like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is so generous and merciful. So I had known of Sheikh Yahya before I had even gone to Tarim. And actually, I remember uh, when I was in my final year at the University of Michigan, Sheikh Yahya had come back to the States. And I think my brother knew him or we, we knew of like a few people who, who had known him. So I got his phone number and I called him and I remember his, his, his eldest daughter I think it's like 15 or 16 now. She was probably like two or three at the time. So he was like, oh, you know, don't cross the street. Careful. You know, he's like talking to her like a child. So I still remember that. And I was just asking him about Tareem and about Dar al-Mustafa. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he gave me some good advice. And then another person who really gave me good advice and encouraged me was uh, Sidi Usama Kanan. And he gave me really good advice about going there. So I'd known of Sheikh Yahya, and then when I moved to Tirim, everywhere I went, every Habib that we visited, every righteous person in, in Hadramaut, when we would go there and they would say, oh, this person is from America, they would say, oh, how's Yahya? And they're talking about Sheikh Yahya. Oh, how is he? I miss him. Give him my salam. When's he coming back? Tell him to come visit me, and so on and so forth. So it was like, I learned more about Sheikh Yahya in Tirim then I knew about him kind of from actually knowing him, you know, personally. And that's one of the things is that they say sometimes, shiddat uh, al-qurb hijab, you know, being very close to someone can be a veil because you don't see the full picture. Uh, and then uh, that was uh, the summer of 2007. Sheikh Yahya had taught at the Rihla and my brother was at that Rihla and helped organize and so forth. And then after that, he came to Tarim. So literally, we overlapped three days before I came back to America. He came to Tirim. So we got to sit down and uh, we went and, uh, you know, did a, a few things together. And, you know, he was very gracious. So that was the first time we ever kind of met and, and, and had kind of, uh, you know, FaceTime before there was the digital FaceTime, face-to-face -face, uh, meeting. And then... Uh, kept in touch after that. He would come to, you know, RIS and I would see him in Toronto and he would come visit. Uh, and we just kept kind of in touch in that way. And then in 2012, right when I moved to Toronto for the chaplaincy, he was like, we're starting this project. It'd be great if you can come. This, that, the other. I was like, Afwan Sidi, I mean, like, I just moved to a new country like this. I'm just getting settled. And then he was like, okay, how long do you need? To, to, for the organization to get stable. I was like three years. And then it turned out to be, subhanAllah, seven years until uh, finally coming. 
but Sheikh Yahya was very gracious and he has been really working very, very hard at establishing Al Maqasid. And then uh, last summer, I came for two months and saw how, you know, how the classes are, the environment here, the community, and then really fell in love, alhamdulillah, uh, with everything that Sheikh Yahya is doing and, and what's going on at Al Maqasid. So then, uh, yeah, alhamdulillah, now. Uh, made the decision to, to to come here and to be here and really ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he continues to you know bless this endeavor and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us tawfiq and makes us you know not protects us from mistakes and protects us from you know any way kind of jeopardizing the the beautiful uh, blessings that are taking place here and protects us from our sins and protects us from uh, all kinds of mistakes and grants us his tawfiq, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alhamdulillah. I think something really unique and beautiful about Al-Maqasid is just being surrounded by nature constantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think to some it would be like, oh my God, it's kind of the middle of nowhere. Like, I need to be near a city. Mm-hmm. And you, like, you've lived in a city for some oh, yeah. years. So, like, what was that shift like? Yeah. Um, you know, I remember when I first got here, when, after moving here from Toronto, and just walking through the trees and stuff. It was just so beautiful. I mean, there's so many signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I don't want to be I don't want to be pessimistic or negative about the city. In Toronto, there's a lot of good in Toronto. But it really made me wonder how sustainable uh, you know a healthy spiritual life is in that kind of environment. Extremely individualistic, very busy, very high stress. Not it's it's very divorced from the fitra. All kinds of things. I remember like when my wife and I we would go to downtown Toronto to go to a restaurant or you know, like it's when people see children in Toronto, it's like they're aliens. It's like it's not built for families, it's not built for you know, and you're going in with this huge stroller and it's like all these kind of like young millennial hipsters, it's like taking up too much space, you know, you got these kids that or, you know, maybe we'll cry or something. It's, it's, it's different. It's like you're in a different world. So coming here, being around the trees, being around other families, being in a place where there's a adhkar and salah together. Like I, I felt early on like it was like a healing for me. And I think, you know, we need to find, we, and, and actually some people think Maqas is out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we're like a two hour drive from New York City, the biggest city in the world. We're, or one of the biggest cities in the world, I don't know. Uh, we're an hour and a half from Newark. We're an hour and a half from Philadelphia. So we're not like, you know, it's not like we're in a place where there's no electricity. Like we're in a city. We're in suburbia, essentially. But people have come here with a shared kind of goal and purpose of, you know, uh, serving, of raising our children in a good environment. Um, so, so far, alhamdulillah, I mean, it's a bit slower in other ways. There's not... Uh, like as much exciting things to do, but the 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 time, like the quiet time of just hanging out with family or with friends, or just going on a walk or riding your bike, you know, those are the things that I really missed. That now, alhamdulillah, we have access to, and we don't have as many nice restaurants. But you know, New York City is not that far away. Philadelphia is not too far away. Alhamdulillah, so we're gonna have to have some zuhud in the restaurants here. <laughs> Last question. Okay. 
there's a few points in your life where it kind of just seemed like there was two paths that you could go mm. on. Um, and I'm sure that's something a lot of people um, in their 20s and beyond struggle with. So what is kind of some advice you can give people for like um, just kind of struggling to make that decision between like two very different paths? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think number one, always turn to Allah. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is guiding our our way. Like he's guiding us along the way. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most generous. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, he is the one who responds to the caller in need when they call upon him. And otherwise, subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's number one. Number two, don't be worried. I think a lot of people start to feel like these decisions are so big that like it's going to affect my whole life. You're in good hands. And your life is going to, you know, probably take you down roads that both good and maybe challenging that you never expected. So don't be so um, attached to the outcome. Don't try to feel like you're don't don't try to control the outcome so much that um, you're you're you become kind of fixed in that you're stuck, you're imprisoned in that outcome. But ask Allah, do your best. And, you know, roll with the punches, as they say. Try to be a little bit flexible. And inshallah, things will work out. We're in good hands, alhamdulillah. We're in good hands. Thank you for your story. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Allah bless you. Thank you for uh, interviewing me and for the opportunity. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashadu an la ilaha la antna astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. الحمد لله رب العالمين جزاكم الله كل خير صلى عليك الله يا حمد الله نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خالق من نور ربه الله يا من سمي قبلي